It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. My name is Sock, and I am one of the co-founders of Coderina, and I mainly do a lot of everything. So <laughs> I, I joined the Discord on the first day of Coderina and have basically been trying to help make it go ever since then. So I, I created a lot of the original processes for how Coderina works and a lot of the original tools that were very clunky and were kind of stuck in place for a long time. And yeah, and then now I, I largely manage the team that, that does all of the different pieces of how Coderina works. And how do you go from joining a Discord channel to becoming a co-founder? Because that's quite a leap, right? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, good question. I joined the Discord really with the intent to learn about the process of building a DAO from the ground up. I'd been involved in some. And when I saw Scott and Zach talk about the concept for Coderina, so Scott Lewis and Zach Cole uh, created the original concept and mechanism of how Coderina works. And when I saw that, having come from a background of security and just being generally interested in DeFi and, and having kind of played with DeFi for a while, I said, this is really relevant and interesting and something that I think I could actually be useful in, in building something from the ground up. So I joined the Discord and just immediately started doing stuff. So like there was a broken link on the website. And so I jumped in and just fixed it via PR. And, and then just started building a lot of other stuff and doing whatever needed to be done. And a week, a week or so later, <laughs> Scott and Zach were like, Hey, we, we don't really have time to run this. Do you want to like help, help us build this and, and help run it? And so I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's so cool. And what were you doing at the moment? Well, so I have been an entrepreneur for quite a while. I'm pretty old. So I've been <laughs> building businesses for mm, about 17 years, 16 years, somewhere in there. I don't remember. Yeah, probably about 17. And the previous business that I started was kind of a like a whole bunch of different businesses connected. I started out as a freelancer and just started doing things that I could do that were tied to the web. And I had a lot of, lot of different background because I'd been writing code since I was, since I was a kid and I'd studied design. And so I had some knowledge there and I liked to write. And so, and then I was, I just enjoyed solving, just helping solve problems. So I was really just kind of jumping in on various things that I could help people with from a design or software perspective, and then started building a team out. So we, we went in a lot of different directions in that business and it really was more like, I don't know, probably, probably eight different businesses at different points. We created products, we had consulting work that we did. And one of the things that we had was a, we had a, a security um, consulting business. And so I had direct experience in that and also had direct experience in uh, participating in a lot of open source and open standards work and did so within the, the really the, the node community when it was really, really new, particularly a couple projects going <clears throat> in that community. One of which was called the node security project, the, which was a decentralized audit of every node module. And really we, the reason we were doing this was because 
in our audit firm, we were doing a lot of work for businesses that were using a lot of JavaScript. And the one thing that we knew was you have a lot of, you have a lot of surface area. As soon as you're bringing in modules, as soon as you're bringing in any dependencies and most, most firms really weren't focused on that as an attack layer. And <clears throat> so we made sure that that was something that we included as part of what we we're doing. And then because we were doing that, we said, let's start building this out as a resource for everyone. So we were bringing in Intel as well as creating our own Intel on various advisories for vulnerabilities that were in node packages. And then we kind of got a lot of people involved in the community building on this and contributing to these advisories. And then we built a product. That product then became what is now NPM audit. So if you ever run NPM audit or you ever, when you're using NPM, you see the list of, Hey, you, these dependencies have known vulnerabilities in them. That's actually from the tool that we built and then later sold that business and that product to NPM. So that from having come from, you know, be, being in both the auditing business and sort of the product side and really also the people side and sort of the open source side, like there were a lot of things that immediately just were like, oh, hey, this is pretty relevant to things that I've had experience in. And also it's new and fun and interesting. And so I want to dive in. At the particular time that I was, that, that uh, I joined in, I had actually stepped back from being directly involved in the business and was kind of just exploring and looking for other, I was kind of just poking around and looking and, and learning. And I'd spent a lot of time really studying DAOs and DeFi, and that was kind of the main thing I was focused on. So I'd also, I'd also been, uh, we bought a, a local newspaper that is a, kind of a community driven newspaper. And that, that was one of the reasons I was looking at different types of organizations was I was trying to figure out a good model for building that into the type of organization that I felt was reflective of the way that it already worked. And Dow seemed like potentially a good fit there, but you know, that, and then I got involved in Coterina and that was kind of, that was kind of where every single bit of my energy and focus went from uh, that point until this very moment. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that your background is almost like the perfect background for someone that would run Coterina. It's almost like it had to be you. And if someone else did it, it probably wouldn't work out as well as it did. It's really funny. because I think there's just. I, I don't even think of myself really as I, I've been security adjacent for a long time. One of my very dear friends, which is the reason that I got into security before I met him, he was a friend of a friend and I had on my website, a captcha for the contact form and the captcha that I made was insecure. <laughs> and this guy sends me a thing to my contact form that says, Hey, your captcha is insecure. You need to fix it. And that's it. That's this email that I get from this guy. And I'm like, what, what, is, <laughs> what, <laughs> like, what, what in the world is this? What does that and, even mean? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just surprised by this. Anyway, a few days later, I happened to meet this guy in person and, and we basically became friends and have been friends ever since, but he is a, He's a grizzled old security veteran. Like, I mean, he's been doing this stuff. He's my age and has been doing this stuff since he was a teenager. He first got caught hacking into 
BBS and, and instead of getting turned in for that, the guy who caught him basically mentored him. And so he's been, he's been in, in that field for a long time. So I, I consider myself a lot of times like a large language model of him because I worked with him alongside him for a really long time. So most of the things that I've learned, I've learned from him and his handle is evil packet. He's been in a lot of different settings in, I worked with him strategically on building up his, his business. So he was actually running a business alongside mine, not, not together. Later we joined, joined in, but he was, he, he was running what was kind of like, we live in a pretty small community in the middle of nowhere. And he was, he had previously worked as a pen tester for semantic and was a consultant for them for quite some time. And, and then he decided he was going to go his own way, but he was doing it by like bootstrapping his pen testing security consulting business by doing local IT, which is like not really very <laughs> exciting work. It's just, it's, it's work that will pay the bills. And he was trying to get more and more work and opportunities. And he was honestly a fantastic hacker and did a lot of really, really, really cool research. And he was at one point just trying to figure out a, a method. And I always like to, I, I like being, I like being random and trying things. And so we had this, I was like, Hey, well, I have an idea we could just do where basically like you film various exploits that you've turned in via bug reports. And you basically film yourself poning my account. And, and then we explain the vulnerability that way. So basically like we release it after the vulnerability is fixed. But so like he had some great videos of him, like owning my Basecamp account and my Rackspace account and a bunch of, a bunch of my accounts basically. <laughs> and, uh, so we built this site that was called, uh, evil packet, uh, education through exploitation. And basically it was like, Hey, this is why you actually should take this stuff seriously. This is how easy it is to find these vulnerabilities. And these are well-known products that people had seen. Right. So it's, so it's basically taking. You didn't get much of anything at all. I mean, bounties, the, the bounties didn't pay a whole lot. And many times it was just a thanks, right? <laughs> in some, in some cases it was a no thanks. Like I remember distinctly actually that Basecamp told him that they actually considered the, what he was pointing out to be a feature. And so his claim was cross-site scripting is not a feature. <laughs> so that was the name of the video. Anyway, we, we put these videos together and ran them out there and he got a, he got a contact form from Chris, Chris Wanstrath, who was uh, one of the, who was at that time, CEO of GitHub and one of the founders of GitHub. And so he ended up doing GitHub's first several pen tests actually. And so there's a whole world of things that kind of opened up from it, from there for him. And, and about that roughly around that same time, he just came in and joined in, in our team and, and we just started building that as a side business too, or as a part of, as a part of our overall business, not as a side business, but so I've been just alongside him for a whole range of things. And then he, he went on to, well, he, he then joined NPM when they acquired that team later went on to GitHub, actually worked at GitHub and then and then spent a good number of years leading security for Auth0 on the red team side. And so most recently I've, I've actually cajoled him into actually joining us over at Coderino on staff. And so one of his responsibilities is actually securing our own footprint. And I think that's, 
something that we take really seriously. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that Coderina does that other platforms might not do that we're just extremely diligent on because we consider ourselves a security platform. I know there's a lot of people that kind of get annoyed by like, gotta have backstage access or whatever to get to be able to see vulnerabilities right away. But there's just a lot of things that we do because frankly, like I've worked with <laughs> security people so long that I, I'm always thinking about how can we, how can we ensure the right secure outcomes and that takes a lot of discipline but anyway there's a kind of a rambling answer to your question <laughs> yeah i know it's cool to hear it's cool to hear it just goes to show that you were the man for the job and what how did you end up in crypto as well was it mainly because of the the DAOs and that what drew in or was it some some other reason why that was uh, enticing to you yeah i mean i think that for a long time, I certainly was extremely aware of crypto and had some crypto and was always kind of checking out what, what was going on in the space. I also previously had, so previously had a lot of interaction with the protocol labs team that they built IPFS and Filecoin and libp2p. And there was a, one of their, one of their founders was a former member of our team prior to starting that. And so was was always was more like on the sort of decentralized web portion of crypto like that side was always really interesting to me crypto itself like bitcoin i never really was that into bitcoin i mean it was interesting as a concept but i just i it ethereum was far more interesting to me than bitcoin and smart contracts that's that definitely was something that piqued my interest but i hadn't really done anything with it until until I started I just playing with DeFi. Oh. If you like, I can search the web for. Oh, Siri. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I just just played with DeFi is basically what I had done. And I was teaching some friends and family some stuff about DeFi because it had been something I was pretty excited about and thinking was interesting. But that was that was really where I was at in terms of crypto. I see, I see. So for those that don't know, which I doubt anyone watching this is not going to know, but I think it'd just be interesting to hear it from you. Can you explain a bit what Code Arena is and what it's supposed to do? Surely. So Code Arena is a competitive audit. The and We created the competitive audit, basically. So the uh, competitive audit is rather than having a couple of auditors for a couple of weeks reviewing code and trying to identify vulnerabilities and provide an advisory report. The approach that we take is we have the project put, to, put up a pool of money and then people are able to identify vulnerabilities. And during the span of, that the competition's open and those vulnerabilities are then graded by severity and based on the number of duplications of each individual vulnerability, they may be extremely valuable or very, very not valuable. <laughs> and that is essentially how Coderina works. It really comes from the need. Of course, Coderina started in the bull market 100% and was the reason that it came to be was frankly because Scott and Zach needed to get an audit for Slingshot, their DEX aggregator. And there was no way for them to get one within a reasonable amount of time when they were ready to ship. And so they came up with this model because they knew people who were auditors and people who were security experts and folks who 
they thought would participate in something if they just threw something together. And eight people showed up and participated in that first one. Today, it's really pretty common for most to have over 100, and occasionally we get some that are 300. And it's pretty wild to see that that type of participation in, a, in an audit. I mean, honestly, like I don't think that there's ever been any kind of participation in any sorts of audits that are like what this model draws in. And to me, that is actually what we need in the ecosystem is I, I just don't think that a couple people reviewing code for a couple of weeks, even if it's a even if it's a nice, long, generous amount of time. I just think that having a diverse view of having a diversity of a bunch of auditors that are coming from a lot of different perspectives is just a stronger audit overall than what you're going to get in a traditional model. And to me, that is in, in the world of smart contracts where there's no safety net, you absolutely need that. Years ago, we, so we never called what we did audits. In our previous business, we called them security assessments. And I know that there's a, there's a lot of people that want to talk about, hey, don't don't use the term audit, say security review, say security assessment, say security consulting. But I actually think that there's real value in this space in acknowledging the value of an audit. And an audit should be, should be like a robust look at how secure is this and how ready is it for prime time. Now, I would extend that by saying that if you really want to have what I think is a high quality audit, you're not just testing whether something has, has a certain number of bugs or has bugs in it, uh, but you're also evaluating your own processes and your security processes and how successful they were at getting the outcome that you wanted, um, which presumably is no bugs, right? So if, you, if the only way that you view an audit is to catch the bugs so that you can fix them before you go to production, that's probably not not an audit but if the if an audit is basically a check on how well did you actually secure what you were attempting to secure and that you were d deliberate in doing that then i think it's appropriate to think of it as an audit and that's where i think we really should be going i think that there should be more more audits happening that that are intending to be as thorough as possible and i think that the the model that competitive audits provide that that Coderina delivers, it is a pretty, it's a pretty rigorous look when you've got that many people pouring over the code. So you think that the term audit, it's, it represents a more holistic overview over calling it a security review because it entails that you're covering all aspects of the code and not only how many bugs can be there, but you're looking at it from like a global perspective. Yeah, I think it's more that like people use the term audit in a variety of cases. And when you're looking at audit, you're you're when you're auditing something, if you're doing this from a financial perspective or you're doing this from a process perspective, you're basically evaluating whether something has met a specific bar. And while I don't think that we're we're necessarily saying this is this is the specific bar that is set within this context as far as what we're doing with Coderina. It's basically like here's here's what the report is. But we know that it's we know that it's thorough and, and there's a lot of people who've looked at it and, and dug at it and that you're gonna get something that's closer to a comprehensive look at the security of 
whatever whatever it is that you're trying to ship. So it's more it's more that I think we should be aspiring to the level of rigor that calling something an audit would entail that that we actually are attempting to give a comprehensive look at, you know, do we think this is sufficiently secure? Not just here's here's what our here's what our view is, here's what we found. And I think that's that's something that we can all I mean, in everybody in the space can aspire to do in, in an increasing length. And I think everybody's kind of contributing to it in their own way. So this isn't really to knock anybody who's using the term security review. It's more just, I think, I think audit is an aspirational term and something that I, um, while in previous, in, in previous work would have avoided, I think it's worth embracing in this context. Yeah. I think semantics is important, especially for projects and people coming from coming from outside the industry, for example, if you're a protocol and you're trying to get an audit or you're trying to get a security review, the way those things are named does matter. And I think it sets expectations and changes how people approach those engagements in the first place. I think that the audit terminology might resemble a little bit too much the act of just checking boxes. Sure. So yep. we've checked all your boxes and that might have the wrong connotation for what it actually is because we, we cannot be sure that all the boxes have been checked. But I do see your point that security view might be maybe a little too limited in its scope. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's not really a problem to use those terms. It's, I think just, I think they have any term that you use has a certain degree of aspiration to it. Yeah, I think the the market's going to converge to one terminology according to customer's preference. I think if we start using security views and for some reason that drives more sales versus audits, that's what's going to land, what's going to decide. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what we're getting. Still to be decided. And there's a lot that needs to happen for an audit in code arena to, to be successful, right? A lot of the, the work is in the background. The auditors don't really see it. And even the clients don't really see it. So what needs to happen that to make the, the code arena audit work that we don't see? Well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, in, in, even to the point that I don't even have a complete picture of all of the nuance that goes into it. I think that that would actually be an extremely interesting conversation to have with, with Ellie from, from Coderina, cause she definitely has a very, very, very detailed map of every single detail that happens along the route. And, and these are all things that we have over time identified. I mean, it's working on a process for an organization is exactly like building software in that. If you're dil if you're diligent and you're disciplined, you identify the vulnerabilities, you identify the bugs, you identify the flaws, and you're very, very you're very motivated to fix those things and to improve them. And so, I'm always looking for what's wrong and what's broken, and that's just where my head is at. And so, we're always trying to find ways to improve that. But like, I mean, I think just in some of the some of the detail of, of what happens. We believe that there's value in having, we've, we've done a unique artwork for every single audit, for example, 
and we have we have an illustrator on staff. We don't use we don't use AI generated illustrations. I mean, we arguably could, but I think there's I think there's something special in in the human touch, and I think it makes it so that every single we like to think of every single audit actually as an event in and of itself, and we treat it with the utmost respect. It's not just something that we're doing in uh, process and just kind of shoving out the door but it's something that we want to think of because for those people who are on the other side of it from a protocol perspective it is one of the biggest things that they have going on all that conceivably all all year it's it's looking at their code in a pretty big setting for the most time for most most of the time if if they're doing a, a public open audit and that's that's a pretty big deal i mean putting there's a ton of people that never put their code up on stage for that many people to poke at. And so we, a big part of what we do and, and why we think that way is that we really want to elevate the respect of the folks who are, as we say, in the arena. And the, it's so funny that there's this meme of like, I'm in the arena trying stuff now, because it's like, I think that's the, the whole notion of being in the arena. The, there's the old, I think, Teddy Roosevelt quote of what's not the, it's, it's not the critic that counts. It's the one in the arena. And that notion is how we look at it from a security standpoint. And I think that the human side of security is so huge that we often don't like, we, we don't give it enough credit. We don't give enough credit to like what, like of all aspects of software and technology, there isn't anything that's as in intensely human and intensely emotional as security. It is driven all by emotion. And so I think there's most of the things that we do are things that we're trying to guide and course guide the course of the river in, in a direction that is conducive for creating an environment that's going to ensure that people feel safe about putting their code out there in an environment where a lot of people are going to be looking at it and criticizing it. Right. So that's a that's a big part of, of of what we're doing that sounds like would take a lot of energy how do you make sure you can give as much attention to every event as the company gets bigger and it scales yeah well i mean we have thankfully we've gradually built increasing processes to be able to ensure that a number of people can handle more things simultaneously, but we do have a very critical role that we've had since the beginning. Like I was the first, we, we call competition administrators, CAs. I was the very first one. And that meant kind of shepherding the process through. It meant being there for, in support of the project in whatever they needed along the way. It meant ensuring that there was some eyes and some visibility and availability for people who were coming in to compete in the audit. And so we have a team of amazing CAs who participate in all aspects of the flow from creating the reports to generating awards, to ensuring that people have what they need from a sponsor perspective or from a warden perspective. And those folks also collaborate then with our group of scouts who are individual wardens who review and ensure that there's accuracy in the scoping based on what was said when we were scoping it. and and scheduling it and ensure that the repos are set up well so that wardens can jump in and understand what's going on and, and are lined up. But those CAs, they carry an, an enormous amount of the emotional weight of the organization. 
and they are absolutely outstanding people who are passionate about supporting wardens. They, they just are. They, the, the, the way that they look at people competing in Code Arena is they are just constantly rooting for all the folks that are there. And I think it takes that kind of attitude. It takes that kind of approach in order for people to be able to have that view. So I think it's something that scales really well, as long as you have the right people and you understand that role really well. It's definitely something that we can continue to grow that team and, and, and we've, we've learned the types of people who are the right fit for the different parts of, of that role. So. Right. I would say that C4 resembles a lot, a traditional company structure. How does it, how is it different from a traditional company and how is it more DAO-like than a traditional company? Well, I think that the interesting thing is that probably the most important part of that answer is that Coderina wouldn't have existed were it not to have started as a DAO. I think that most DAOs that I participated in did, I mean, they just were very different than what, what Coderina is. Coderina is extremely, extremely unique compared to most DAOs, just even in terms of what it does and how it works. The thing that is I think super interesting is that rather than needing to figure out how to incentivize people to contribute to building what we we're building from day one, there was a, there was a way for people to earn money on the platform and to get paid well for what they were doing. And so I see it as really mixture of an ecosystem with people playing a lot of different roles. And I see the DAO itself as a vehicle for getting us to where we're at. And I think that in, in reality, like the, the, the idea of a purely democratic voting system for determining like what the rules of the mechanism would be, I think that would break things because you, you have more wardens than anything else. Right. So if you, if you basically just were like, Hey, this is what's good for wardens. Well, that's not necessarily what's good for sponsors. It's not necessarily what's going to solve their problem from a security standpoint. And I think that there's in a way that's kind of the role that the, the staff plays is getting to kind of be an independent party in an ecosystem of interoperating, you know, teams and, and, and individuals that all sort of play different parts. And we get to be sort of the, almost like the commissioner, right. Of a sports league where we're coming in and ensuring that the system works, that it's fair. And we're not there to necessarily like tell how the rules should exactly work because most of that is going to come as feedback and discussion and ideas from within the community but we are going to help guide them in the, in a way that is representative of all of the various interests that are present. A good example of this, if I, if I may, is a lot of, there's a lot of discussion right now with regard to judging bot races. So bot races are something that we added and it's very funny to me because I see people make comments that, oh, well, Coderin is a good place to go. If you want to get like a bunch of low hanging fruit and a bunch of things that can be identified by automated findings and I'm like, well, actually <laughs> the funny thing is that all those are completely swept clean by the bots and then anything that's actually in the, the audit, which I think we, I think we've been disrespecting our bots in fact, because we're not even reporting some of the vulnerabilities that they're finding. Like we've, we've just been reporting the things the humans were finding 
and we kind of recently realized, hey, we should be giving credit to some of the bots that have found some actual bugs that then didn't end up making it into the didn't end up making it into the the report uh, because they were identified as known vulnerabilities. So we got to respect our bots a little more. But you know that process of of adding bots was intended to allow wardens to be able to focus on just finding the bugs that only humans could find instead of everybody having to submit the same bugs that everybody would find in order to make sure that they were only worth a cent. <laughs> right. So, so the, the interesting thing that's, that is the case with the bot races is that we wanted there to be a competition in order to create a better and better bot. But the way that we set up the judging process for that was simply just have a judge do their best to take a look at the reports and stack rank them and just go, Hey, this one was, this one was the best and get that out the door. And then the other ones just get a basic grade, essentially sort of at an ABC level and the C's get rele relegated and can come back again and try, try later to, to qualify. But, but that model, then of course, the wonderful thing about our community is that I think that we are full of people who precision and accuracy is extremely important. And this is something that I think you can see in just how much case law there is and how much discussion there is with regard to how we do judging and all of the intricacies of the process and, and things that we've done along the way for how judging works. And now there's sort of this same desire to see the same thing implemented within bot races. Makes sense, right? These bots, these bots are submitting vulnerabilities and some some of them are going to inevitably be invalid and so the question is do you have a judge go through and like completely validate invalidate every single identified vulnerability and if you're doing that you now like now you got a, a lot more work to do right like you it's one thing to kind of go through and go like hey these are clearly not valid or this is this is a high severity issue and it definitely it definitely seems to be valid so we're going to count that one to be able to do like a quick pass and just go like hey this is pretty good when the goal is really just to have that one report it it works but as soon as you're trying to get into the level of like how much how much detail and accuracy are you giving to the judging of those bots now now you've got a new now you got a new challenge well there's some judges who have done or there's some bot race judges who've done a really good job of being thorough in their review and having a systematic process for how they judge. And that's awesome. And they, they should do that. And there's a lot of people who've kind of adopted more and more of those sort of approaches. But the one of the differences of being able to say, here's, here's a standard that somebody has gone after in order to figure out like how, how we want this bot race to work. It's it's different when you've got an expectation of what the judge has to do. The judge has a limited amount of time. The judge has paid a fixed fee. If you now are saying to the judge, hey, you've got to do it. You got to do it this way. And you've got to do it in this amount of time. You've now expanded the amount of effort. And, and so from my vantage point, as much as bots may want for there to be a specific rubric and a specific level of accuracy down to each individual finding validity and all the rest. And that is an aspirational good thing to, to look at and want. It also is something that I think that the judges have to consent to, 
right? Like they can't just have that shoved on them and say like, no, you have to do this. Especially when it's like, well, they've already agreed to do it at this, this way for this amount of money. And so, so I think that's a good example of, I think there's a lot of ways to be, to be a, a DAO, like, and thinking of it as just purely that every decision gets made on chain is very different from like, okay, well, there's a lot of different interests and everybody has the right for their interest to be included in the discussion. But then they, there's also the, there's also the, the element of consent and, and of what is going to make the organization successful, which at the end of the day is better securing protocols, right? Like nobody will come to Code Arena if it's just like, well, we're really good at paying auditors. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope that we're good at paying auditors for what they're doing. And I think in some ways there's, there's a lot of places that I would go, boy, I wish we could, I wish we could pay people better for this contribution or that contribution. But in reality, it's like, well, this is what the system is. This is how, this is how it, how it pans out. But there's also a lot of importance of just like, we've got to secure projects at the end of the day. And so whatever we do has to move in that direction, which obviously if you're not, if you're not giving sufficient compensation to auditors, you're not going to be able to secure protocols, right? So there's balance in every direction, but I think it's, it's always interesting from that perspective. So I just look at a DAO as like the way that we look at a DAO is basically like, we have a lot of different stakeholders that all have valid viewpoints and valid perspectives. And most of the work of being a DAO is respecting those viewpoints and remembering why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. And it isn't about necessarily the fact that like every decision is a democratic decision on chain that, <laughs> that that's a different goal, right? Like that's, that's a cool thing to happen in some organizations, but there's a lot of organizations that completely fail because that's, that becomes like their North star is like, everything has to be done in this way. Every decision has to be made in this way. So would you say that C4's role it's more of a mediator rather than a, let's say classical DAO in that respect. I mean, I think that it's, I mean, I, I really do see the staff's role as commissioner of the league, right? So there's sort of different interests that are part of that overall league and everybody has their sort of, um, contribution to it, but you know, that's sort of we're mediating, arbitrating. I mean, there's certainly a lot of that stuff that happens. Yeah, that makes sense. And when C4 started, that was just one type of contest. Now you have a certified only, you have limited water number, formal verification, mitigation review, and maybe a few more that are missing. Was that something that was premeditated from the start that you thought that you probably would have to go in that direction? Do you have any plans in the further differentiation between consensus types? So most definitely there was no thought of like, okay, we're going to have this type and that type and these other types of things. Almost everything that Coterie has done has been in response to one of those major parties needs, right? So either wardens or sponsors or judges have a specific need that we need to do a better job of meeting. And so a lot of the solutions that we come from, come with from a mechanism perspective are intended to, are intended to meet one, two, three of those groups needs and, and trying to balance that in terms of the overall health. So those different, those different models are all things that emerged 
as a result of identification of those needs. In terms of where we go in the future, I think that the way that I view the future of Coderina is we have a responsibility to continue to take the things that we've learned and the community that we've built in order to do a better job of securing protocols. I think that is just, we can't just say what we've done is good and we're done. And this model, we're just going to keep running this model and this model works. We got to make it better and we need to continue to find ways to bring the expertise that we've been able to gather through Code Arena and bring that expertise into higher leverage places within the overall process. And I, that's why a big part of why we really pushed and went for adding the ability for protocols to book solo audits through Code Arena is that we know that solo audit can save someone a lot of pain down the road in terms of coming through Code Arena and ending up with a long list of high severity findings is when you spent that, when you spent the money on a, on an audit in that way, it can be pretty painful because it's like, boy, okay, well, we really, sh we really need to go back and kind of refactor this. We need to rewrite like half of our contracts. If we're going to do, if we're going to be really diligent in securing this. And that is, that's honestly a scenario that I would love to see happen less and less and less. And I do believe that a piece of that is getting, getting security expertise involved earlier in the process. And when I hope that what, what, you know, most definitely that the huge growth of, of the solo auditor can help, can help do that. And then we can help facilitate those sorts of things happening earlier in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that earlier you start your security process, the better it's going to be in the long run and that less money overall, you're going to have to spend either because of paying bug bounties or having to refactor your code and spending many extra engineer hours on it. And when Coderini started a few years ago, that was an entirely different security landscape. And now we have all these different contest types. There's other platforms that emerge from the Coderina model. How do you see Coderina differentiating itself from these new platforms now and in the future? I mean, I think at the end of the day, Coderina is focused on the customers that we are serving and the needs that we've identified from the conversations that we've had with them. And so we're just constantly looking to build better processes and better tools and better results. At the end of the day, the, the way that we measure success is that customers have greater peace of mind and the, and protocols are more secure. And anything that we do in the future is based on that. So I hope that, I mean, I love competition, the competition angle of other platforms coming in and doing what they do. It keeps us accountable, right? Like we, we charge money for what we do. Our team is a decent sized team and we're working really hard all the time on trying to make every aspect of what we do better. And it would be very easy, I think, for someone in kind of a market leading position to just kind of go, Hey, we've got a good product and we can kind of sit on it and we can make it work and just figure out like how to make it make more money or whatever. But the reality is like, that's not, that's just not where, that's not where we come from. And we're like trying to figure out like, how do we make this, how do we make things more secure? How do we, how do we challenge our assumptions about what security is and should be and how do we push that forward? So everything that we're looking towards in the future is focused. That's a hundred percent on where we're at. So I certainly 
it's I, I think that at the end of the day, like it's great when there's when there's competition, there's people that are doing new and different and interesting things. And I know that there's a lot of really cool things that people have done out there in sort of whether whether they're taking a variation of the Codarina model or whether they're building something that's very different. I think all those things are pretty interesting to me. And I the thing that I believe at the end of the day is that it's a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> Like it's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work to do this stuff. There's way more profitable things that people could be doing in this field than that. And so if they're wanting to do that, I think there's a level of passion for creating secure outcomes. And so my hat's off to those people. So I, I, I just, I just have to say it is, it is an enormous, enormous amount of work and it's really a lot of cat wrangling and, and it's a very human process as much as it may seem like a very simple sort of thing. So I think that, and I think that other platforms have, have learned that as they've, they've dove in and maybe we, maybe in some ways we made it look easy, <laughs> but it's not, it's not easy. And I will admit that it's been incredibly difficult for us all along the way. And if we, if we look like we make it easy, it's, it's just because we agonize and stress and fret and worry and try and try and exhaustively figure out every single problem that we could encounter and how we can, how we could meet those. So it, it if it looks easy with Coder and it's definitely, I can assure you it is definitely not. <laughs> I have a bit of a loaded question. What is being the most challenging part of growing Codarena? That's a good question. What would I say there? I think the most challenging part is that I I am a very like personal person, right? I, I am a relational person first and foremost. And I have a lot of relationships with a lot of people who've competed in Coderina, a lot of people who've brought projects into Coderina, a lot of people who've judged in Coderina. And I have had a lot of DM conversations with a lot of people over the years. And I wish that I had all the time to be able to do that. And so probably the biggest challenge is just like for, I mean, this is me speaking personally, right? Like I'm not talking about Code Arena as a whole, what our biggest, our biggest challenge are not the things that are hard for me. <laughs> There's other, there are other things, but my biggest, the biggest challenge for me is that I would, I would like to have a great relationship with every person who's, who I've connected to through Code Arena. And I, and I would love to maintain that relationship. The fact is that there's just there's only so much time to go around. And so that's, that's always a little bit of a hard thing is there's so many cool people that I've met over the years through what we've been doing. And it's an absolute privilege to get to know uh, those folks. And I think the other piece of that is having to make and participate in discussions that result in hard decisions and where that someone's going to be disappointed by some outcome. And the one thing is like, a, it isn't in, in almost all the cases, it isn't, it isn't that that I'm even necessarily like making a decision so much as facilitating one, right? Like there's, there's a lot of things where it isn't, it's, it's a judge making a decision, right? Or it's a set of judges making a decision in some difficult circumstances, or it's, or it's sponsor making a decision about how they're going to approach their, their audit. And there's just a lot of different decisions that I wish that I could meet the needs that everybody's expressed because I think that they're valid, right? I think that, for example, everyone would like to make more money. That's a valid feeling. <laughs> and everyone would like for 
the for everyone would like for the mechanism to deliver the results that they feel value people's uh, participation in the way that that they view that value and that's not what the mechanism does the mechanism attempts to compensate people based on the rarity of what it is that they're finding and the severity of what they're finding and it doesn't it doesn't care <laughs> and that is really hard right because it's like oh man i know this person worked really hard on this i know that they put a lot of energy and effort into it but to some extent it's it's interesting to see, and I've heard people say this, is like you keep showing up and you're, you get, sometimes you're like, Hey, wow, I, this turned out really well. And sometimes you're like, Hey, this turned out really poorly because you, you don't know how it's going to, you don't know how it's going to end up. You don't know what other people are going to find. And that's both an incredibly frustrating thing about the, the mechanism. And also it's why the mechanism works and it's why it's effective because people don't know. And if they did know, they probably would do different things and we would have, I think, less quality outcomes. And so I think those are probably, it's the personal side of things that, that is, is probably the biggest challenge for me is because I get where everybody's coming from. I get when people are frustrated about this or that. I, I get when people are stressed about how many vulnerabilities were identified in their protocol. I get the urgent need that someone feels to ship a product and the sense of like, this is this audit is going to set us back if we take these findings seriously and and what they're saying. So I just feel it's it's all the human side for me. Are there any things you wish you'd done differently in some moments in regards to C four? Hmm. Good question. I find the things that I wish I'd done differently question always challenging because I really value the learning opportunity that mistakes provide, right? Like I value most of the things that, that I feel like I've learned in my career have, have come from things that were maybe not the decisions that I would have made if I knew what I knew later, but I wouldn't have gained that experience and knowledge otherwise. Right. So, so to that extent, I have a friend who I worked with for many years who I used to say that the best part about being wrong is you get to be right, right again. <laughs> And I think that that's, that's the case. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that either decisions that I've made or things that I intended to do and didn't get around to doing and left kind of hanging because there were just other fires and there were other things that were driving my attention, or I didn't have an answer for how something should pan out. And all of those things, there's plenty of, there's plenty of what I would describe as like the sense of regret, but it is not true regret. It's more the feeling of like, just wishing that the, it's more the same answer of the, to the other question, right? So that it's wishing that the, the human strain wasn't, wasn't created there. It's wishing that, that there wasn't someone let down or disappointed by something that, you know, that I was part of. And so I'd say it's all those, it's all those little things that I would say are both things that those would be the things that would stand out to me, either decisions that were made too hastily without proper input from a certain party. But then there's also decisions that weren't made because too much deliberation was taken and that no matter what the decision was, it was going to be an unpopular one in one way or another. And so there's no, it's not, it isn't just like, well, this one, this was a good result because these people were happy or this was a good result because these people were, weren't unhappy or whatever. But, you know, I think that 
most of those most of those senses are are just a wish for things to have have been different in the in the circumstances of them not necessarily things that i would go back and like do differently they just they just were and most of the time they were the result of a lack of information or a lack of understanding or and those were things that were gained as a result of <laughs> of those 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 decisions yeah i think the c4 business model or more specifically the the judging part of the business model it is inherently ruthless and it's just something that is going to upset someone on one of the ends at some point and there's not much that we can do about it it is just democracy how it works right someone's going to be upset but yeah well this... i mean the the thing that you know as a as an example of just like how important that that i do take some of that stuff how much i prioritize it like we had we've had circumstances where there were completely well-intentioned wardens and completely well-intentioned judges who saw things very differently and who were totally at odds with each other and i participated in conversations just to try and help both of them to hear each other's perspective and in many cases have been able to work through some of those things and there's definitely a really solid case of folks that became friends as a result of of those conversations and so it is it is hard but it is also like i think it's something that everybody understands is hard and is willing to very often put in the put in the time and and give the the patience to kind of figuring things out so i'm glad for that yeah and that takes an incredible amount of time and energy but besides the personable side of Corina what are some of the biggest pitfalls you see for the business model itself? Well, I mean, I think that it's it's inherently a challenge to ensure that the relationship of value that is delivered is is appropriate in in each direction. So for for example i would say that a couple of years ago as we moved from there being a handful of 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 people competing where there was probably we were where we were running 12 to maybe 20 and then tw and 20 would be like wow i can't believe we had 20 people compete Cute. <laughs> know, it's really it's really funny to think about really as we got to get it to to around 20 one of the things that i was really wrestling with was I sort of, I sort of felt a lot of angst about the fact that sponsors were paying roughly the same amount, right? For, we hadn't really significantly adjusted what the amount they're paying was. They're paying roughly the same amount and that, that the money was not going as far for folks who were competing. And that's definitely something that I've, I've always sort of had a degree of a struggle with, but I also have come to recognize like the beauty of the mechanism and what is what is actually being performed through the process of of code arena. And so I think one of the one of the cha challenges and the downsides is that there will always come a point when when people competing, there are just they by their success in competing, they've created so many opportunities for themselves that they 
probably will just go on and do other things and maybe they'll compete occasionally or maybe rarely. Right. And I think that there's a level of that, that is, that's, I think easy to go like, that is not a desired outcome, but I actually think it is a desired outcome. And I think that it isn't that we don't want people to compete and continue competing on Code Arena, but I say that from the perspective of my understanding of auditing in general. So having worked with auditors, one thing that I know about auditing is that it is a really hard profession. And it's very prone to burnout and it's very prone and, and burnout is really, there's a great book, Parker Palmer, let your life speak and burnout. He really defines burnout as like, there are some times when like you think of your life as like a lump of clay and you're sort of like pushing on your, pushing on the clay and pushing it in a, in different direction. And there's some points when the clay pushes back <laughs> that essentially like you can push yourself so far, but there's a certain time that your life just says, nope, I'm not anymore. And I think that, and I think that the reality is that we auditing is such a weird profession that I think that the vast majority of people who do it and, and, and participate in it, the vast majority of them will not stay in it in the, in the way that, that they start in it. Right. So like the intensity of learning, the intensity of, of constantly needing to level up of absorbing large amounts of information. I think that, and doing that repeatedly just over and over and over and over and over. I think that that is something that certain people are, it's, it's a great fit for them, but that's not actually the majority of people that I think come through auditing. I think that a lot of people for auditing, for a lot of people, auditing is actually a transitional career. And a lot of auditors that I've known who were outstanding, absolutely outstanding auditors do not audit anymore. They do other things and they do other things that actually, guess what? They, they probably have bigger impact on securing things than, than auditing does. And I think this is actually a very normal human, this is a very normal human thing, right? So people apply that people go through the process where they are learning really intensely and they're applying that learning in a high volume. And then you get to a certain point where you're like, having found the same bug for the hundredth time or the thousandth time or the 10,000th time, there's a futility in that, right? That is basically like, what am I doing? Like, what is this? And in a way that could be like, oh, well, that's really disappointing. But the other way of looking at it is, people respond to that and they, one of the very healthy, one of the very healthy responses to that is like, you know what I want to do? I want to just like go to a place in the process where I can ensure that some of these bugs are just never going to happen again. Right? So whether that's, I'm going to build a tool, right? I'm going to focus on building a tool or I'm going to improve a process, or I'm going to go be an advisor, um, you know, for a protocol, or I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to go help, uh, you know, work more in a consultative perspective earlier on. Right. So I think that there's, so I, I see all of that as part of people's journeys. And so I, what I would have loved to have seen is I frankly, so paradigm actually did some analysis of the market as a whole. And one of the things that they identified in the security in web three security in general is that largely prior to code arena, there 
there were very, very, very few people working as solo auditors and that that's not the case now, right? There are just, there are tons of people working as solo auditors. I mean, everybody's got uh, DM me for solo audit in their, <laughs> in their, in their bio or their handle entirely. Right. So the, and you know, what I, what I wish that we could have done earlier on. And in fact, the warden profiles that we shipped earlier this summer was something that we wanted to do two years ago, but frankly, like all of the things that we wanted to do for it, we just were so focused on the actual needs of customers and what the platform needed and what the data flows that were needed for just shipping the audits that we had, <laughs> like we couldn't, we couldn't do it. And we needed to really kind of go back to square one on the data structure because first version of all the stuff that I threw together was like kind of using GitHub as a database and CSV files and JSON files were like spread all over the place, which makes it super nice to like scrape and import into whatever data form, but really not easy to build a, a single application that's using that data. <laughs> like it's a very, it's very clunky. So anyway, so we kind of needed to do a lot of a pretty significant amount of tech debt pay down in order to do that. But that's definitely something that I, I, I think that would have been more of a sense of like people graduating through the process into being more independent consultants or people who were doing solo audits or moving more earlier in the stack. And that's basically what we're doing at this point, right? So that's, that's largely our intent with, with solo audits. That makes sense. And Sephora was largely responsible for a big increase of talent in the space. And this large increase of opportunity drove in more people as well. And this affects the ratio between available contests and current participating wardens, right? And the more and the the number of wardens seem to be increasing a lot faster than the number of contests. And do we worry that at some point this ratio is gonna be so different that the contests end up entirely unattractive? Well, I mean, I think that there's some, there's some discussion that's taken place on in that direction on Twitter. And one of the things that I've seen pointed out, I've heard Warden say this actually for well over a year, which is essentially like, if you, if you are competing in the contest model and you are, you know, and you're good at it, there's money to be made, right? If you're, I mean, the, the mechanism I think is, the mechanism is extremely punishing to to anyone who is at the level of slightly below average. Like essentially, if you are finding vulnerabilities that um, <clears throat> nearly everyone is finding, then the mechanism is ruthless. And it says you haven't added any additional marginal value. <laughs> like that's actually the mechanism's opinion. It's basically saying, you didn't do anything that helped this audit. And so you're not getting very much more money. Now, to me as a, like a very human person, that's such a mean thing to say, <laughs> but it's the, it's just the reality, right? Like, and I think that one of the, this is one of the things that Coterina has done. And I've said this before, but I think that Coterina has driven down the price of well-known bugs and has helped to make well, particular classes of vulnerabilities well, well, well known and well understood by a wide range of auditors in a way that was just not the case before because of that process. And so 
Well, I think that I think that it will be there. There will always be. I think, it, and I'll actually add one other thing. I think there's even more headwinds that that bot races added. Right. So one of the things that was the case was there really were. I mean, Andy Lee has this a great video that you probably have seen. This this is a great video where he's like, "Hey, I made this uh, thing that basically just makes money on Coderina." Like he's like, I just run this thing. It submits these findings, and I get and I get payouts. Well, I mean, that's clever and it's fun. And I don't, I don't, I think I I love Andy. So like, that's not I'm not dogging on Andy. And a lot of people were doing that. But I think that that's not giving anybody any value. No one's getting, no one's learning more as a result, right, from having participated in that way. And the sponsor is certainly not getting any thing of value for people submitting those findings. And so bot races pretty much crushed all of that stuff, right? So to where it's like, well, there isn't any room for you jumping in and finding these things. And so I think that there is a lot of value and momentum to be gained for like a new auditor to experience those wins. But that's probably where I see more of the headwinds in Coderina is like, if you are a long ways from if you're if you're well below average and you're pretty new and you're not and you don't have like an an element of like kind of I'm going to grind this out and I know that I'm going to get good if I practice at this stuff like I think it's far more demotivating than it was 2 years ago. I mean, frankly, it's insane if you go back and look. I mean, this you definitely know this. I plus I mean, plus. I mean, yeah, it's like <laughs> the things that people could turn in and get like I mean, seriously, there's I mean, there were low severity bugs that people could turn in and make 500 bucks. I mean, it's just like very, very, very silly compared to what the numbers are today. And so do I worry about that stuff? I don't really, because the mechanism has kind of shown time and time again that it does work and it does reward people sufficiently to keep coming back. And there are people who said that they don't feel like they don't feel like the payouts have gotten worse for them over over the course of the last year. And and I would say that that's probably now we could see 10x as many auditors, right? But I think that there's enough overall proliferation within like the ecosystem of places that people can go to earn money and to provide their services that I think that like the the their overall economy of the of like our ecosystem is directing people to places where they can apply their value in ways that is going to get them paid more based on the expertise that they have gained, whether that's offering a solo audit because you're extremely good at what you're doing and you're going to be really helpful to a protocol really early or consulting or what have you. Right. So I think that's, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I remember some early goals that C4 had was to get 20 to 40 contests a week. This hasn't happened yet. Why do you think that is? Do you well, think there's in yeah, in reality in reality that goal was set in the in at at the point that we anticipated the continuation of the bull market on some level, right? So I think that every bit of trajectory that we've experienced, I mean we have definitely had weeks where we're running 10. We've, we've definitely done that a good number of times. And, and then if you take into account like the entire ecosystem and other people that are running audits that clearly, you know, that, that 
they wouldn't be doing the they wouldn't be doing things in this model were were it not for at least a touch of inspiration from what Coderman was doing. And when you look at the entire ecosystem, right, there's tons of of audits that are going on at some times. And you can look at Alex's Daily Warden and see a lot of things that are going on. But I think in order for us to be hitting the 20 to 40 level, I think there's a couple things that have to happen. One is I think there's I think there's still the vast majority of audits are not competitive audits. The vast majority of audits remain. And there's good reasons for that, I would say. It isn't that there's it, it isn't that there's people who have there's tons of people who have not been converted to this being and I would say probably the majority of projects have not been converted to this being a thing that's even on their their radar completely. Because I'm I think our team runs into people all the time who this is a brand new concept and people who've been in the space for a long time and they just they don't even know or understand how it works. And so I think there's still a lot of people that have yet to been kind of, I don't know, competition pilled to, so to speak, but even among, uh, even among the set of audits that occurs, one of the things that is definitely a factor is sometimes you're wanting something that is far more consultative or you're wanting something that is more private or you're wanting something that is not not designed to achieve what Coderina is designed to achieve. And so I think that there are ways for us to continue to offer those services in a more structured, in a way that's more structured around what those specific needs are. And some of that means more, more audits that are completely private. And we do, we certainly do some of those. And it means some that are smaller invitationals that are also private. And it also means other things like bringing in solos and small teams. And so I think ultimately it will not, I don't think that it would surprise me if we were at the point of kind of in that 20 to 40 different engagements happening by this time next year, because of the fact that there's just, I mean, we definitely do see a lot of people already booking solo engagements through Coderina and People who've done that have had really good feedback on it. So I certainly expect that to be something that we continue to do. You didn't have much time to speak during the panel with the other auditing firms, founders. So could you maybe elaborate a bit on the pros and cons of traditional audits versus the contest model? And why do you think traditional firms could be a better choice than, than Code Arena for some projects? Sure. Well, I mean, I definitely think that one of the things that a traditional firm has going for it in spades is the ability to build a relationship with a trusted advisor. And I think that's, I think that has incredible value. And, and I value that because that's a part of a business that I've built before. And I think when, when it comes to security, like having someone who is that person for you is extremely hard to replace with, with anything. <laughs> At the end of the day, we're, we're people and we build relationships with people as individuals. And when you're talking about something that's as sensitive and as intense emotionally as security, you want to have a, a trusted relationship that you built. And so I do think that there is a tremendous value in, in, in any protocol, having a relationship with whether it's a firm or it could be an individual Warden as a consultant, frankly, I think there's a lot of people in our community who do a great job of that. And some of them do provide those sorts of services, whether that's through other 
other firms or independently on their own. But, you know, I think that that aspect is the, is the key one. I think there's a lot of other things that, you know, that, that Coderina provides a, a pretty unique value in terms of the number and the rigor of whatever is going to go into a code review. That's pretty hard to, it's just hard. I mean, it's just hard to beat hundred people. And especially when, I mean, time and again, the numbers have shown like, and the, and the quality of people coming through Coderina, like there's good people constantly coming through Coderina. It isn't something where it's like, oh, well, we've run out of all the people who are capable of doing this well. That is never going to happen. <laughs> and the more intense that the competition gets, the more that very unique people will rise really quickly because because of who who they are and how how they're able to take in and build on what everybody's done before. So I think I think yeah. both have significant value. Yeah, I agree. Like many people have mentioned at this point, it's a matter of stacking different layers of security onto your protocol and try to cover as much ground as possible. And Jocelyn Feist mentioned that one of the things that protocols are interested in as well is not only having like that trust relationship, but also advising on things that wardens wouldn't be bothered reporting. So very low felonies or QA and things like this. Would you say that there's there could be an adjustment in the C4 algorithm to tackle those problems as well? Or do you think that's something that's entirely out of the scope that C4 could cover? Well, one of the things that we've added in the last few months is analyses. So analyses are actually intended to provide a lane for some of the types of submissions that I would consider to be more consultative and are valuable. And people have it's, it's remarkable how much effort some people have put into these analyses and sponsors have gotten a lot of value out of them. And so I think that's a pretty key spot that people can, can, can deliver that value. And I think that those will open up other opportunities as, as I see it for people selling individual services for us to be able to go, Hey, here's a way that we can bring the expertise that's demonstrated by the analyses and the sort of view of, let me give you recommendations on how you might refactor this, which by the way, like being able to be in a scenario where this is one of the downsides of a firm in providing that sort of feedback is that it is, you're going, you're getting the advice from one doctor, right? There's, there's a lot of value in the medical profession in like taking the same sets of test results and data and bringing the same readings to a handful of doctors and getting a second opinion. If it's something that is, is really like a life-threatening thing or is a very grave scenario, it's just the knowledge is not sufficiently distributed in the medical community to where any one random doctor that you go to is going to give you the right advice. And so one of the things that I think Coderina can do quite uniquely is for protocols is to provide multiple viewpoints. And then you start to see some patterns, right? You start to see rather than just like trusting this one person's viewpoint, you get a few independent viewpoints. And so somebody who says, Hey, you should refactor it and use this pattern over here. Someone else might say, Hey, you might be suggested to refactor using this pattern, 
but I actually know this about this pattern as a flaw. Like this is a commonly recommended pattern that people say that folks should use, but I want to share, I want to make sure you're informed about, you know, the downsides of that, right? The same way if you go to a, a medical provider and they, they suggest a treatment that sounds like, Hey, this is a great option for you. And then you go to another doctor and they're like, well, yes, you could do that. And it has these side effects and you may want to be in, informed of those things. And so I think that the, the diversity of what Coterina is bringing together is the strength and it will always be the strength that we're continuing to build on in whatever it is that we offer. And that is definitely something that, you know, when I look at the types of things that Jocelyn is talking about, I agree that there's some, there's definitely some things that a firm is going to provide, but there's also some things that a firm cannot provide in that scenario because they're going to have their viewpoint and their viewpoint is going to be a single a single dot. And so there's, there's already a standard practice that everybody is pretty well familiar with of projects going and getting multiple audits from multiple teams, getting advice from a variety of sources. And I think we can more efficiently to facilitate some of those things. Um, but the relationship piece, that's the hardest to, that's the hardest piece to replace. Yeah. I think getting a lot of different opinions from capable people is definitely a better way to go about it rather than just like trusting one advisor. One could argue that firms contain more than one person, right? So you have like a miniature sort of contest yes, discussion of between Absolutely. the auditors. And one could say that the amount of input you get from those type of analyses or sometimes even bugs in Quote Arena when there's too many options and you can't oh, decide. Oh, like paradox of choice? Too yeah, much. yeah, too many, too many choices. Paralysis paradox. analysis. Okay, sure, sure, sure. There you go. Yeah, that and that could cause overhead in terms of figuring out how to move forward because you have all these different options that you could choose. Yeah. And now I have to sift through them and figure out. I think, I mean, I do think that's where a judge could come in in those sorts of scenarios, right? So the judge <clears> could go, hey, here's, this is the, here's these recommendations that came in and this is what having read them, this is what I would point towards. So I think in, in those particular cases where those sort of recommendations are coming in, having, having that, having the judge's viewpoint is helpful because you are getting someone who is sitting in the position of an expert who is reviewing a variety of pieces of input. And then they're able to say, given all this variety of input, I'm now going to suggest that this is the, this is the one that I would pay most attention to. Um, yeah. So I think there's, there is a role for that. I mean, you're still hundred percent right because I think anybody is going to pull in that, that information and sort of analysis paralysis is a, a very real thing with dealing with. I mean, that's part of the reason that a year ago we got rid of, I mean, it used to be, it's, I mean, it's unthinkable to me that for a long time that sponsors were responsible for triaging and reviewing their own and deduping, right? Like they're, their own issues. That's just completely, completely insane to me. And, and it wasn't that case actually for the first few, but then we realized it was in the sponsor's best interest to do that in, as a way of providing their input, um, in the process. But then it just became so big that it's like, we almost killed some sponsors just from <laughs> having to review the 
shoots. So most definitely reducing the amount of analysis for sponsors is extremely important, I think. So you're definitely on the right track in general. Yeah, I think it can be a hard balance to achieve as well, because of course they need to be involved to some regard, but obviously you don't want to have like throw like 500 issues at them and just say like, here you go. This is, this is our security review. And yep. given your past experience so far, both in the Web2 sector and now in crypto, how do you see the current state of the the feud, like on a scale from one to 10? In terms of the maturity of the space, I would definitely say that we are less than one, honestly. And I, I mean, I would say that we're maybe we're at one, but I would say that we've maybe may, I'm probably being, I'm probably being uncharitable. I think when, when we joined, when Coterina joined this, the, I would say the industry was less than one. I would say it's more more maybe close to two or three or something, not because Coderina joined it, but although I think there's a definitely a, a factor of what leveling up has taken place. But I think a good example of this is that most most projects that come through have really their eyes set on an audit as something to find bugs in what they're doing in their smart contracts and then their mentality is patch those and then ship it. And I think that's fine in some cases, but um, it makes me uncomfortable in a lot of cases. And the bigger thing that I see is like, there isn't, there isn't a culture of like secure by design outside of like some of the biggest projects. And this is like, this is such enormously risky software that it, it is uh, just unthinkable to me that security that uh, we've really sort of imported the web model of move fast, break things. And you can just like kind of build the happy path and then secure it. Like we've just sort of a, taken that in because that's a way that everybody's built everything pretty much for the last 15, 20 years. But like, if you look at hardware and the process that people go through in building hardware, it's a, there's a lot more diligence. There's a lot more because you're, you're going to send something out there, right? If you think about like what stories of people who are, who are building the systems for the for moon the moonlander right like my, my i think uh, we don't have to go that far maybe just bridges or airplanes right yeah yeah i mean even yeah, just a degree of discipline yeah i mean it doesn't have to be going to the moon just a degree of of discipline in the engineering yeah you're i mean you're 100 right it there are there are so many other engineering disciplines that y it would be unthinkable to approach the way that the way that I would say the majority of protocols build smart contracts. And so, and that's not a knock on any of them. It's really just about the maturity of the space. And I think that that is the place that, you know, really that. And, and, okay, some and, improvement. Yeah. And, and what I see most people building is I see people building for that 
phase, right? I see people building in the direction of bounties in audits and, and in tools that are providing monitoring and, and that sort of thing. And there's definitely now, now there's a lot of really great contributions, no question, like Kidna, for example, right? Like being, you know, invariant testing as a whole is, is an amazing thing and hats off to all the work that the folks at Trail of Bits have done on, on, on the tools that they've provided to, to the extended community. But I think there's, I think there's definitely just a lot that people in the space as a whole could be, do, could be doing to move, you know, uh, move, move secure thinking earlier in the process. Yeah. I think it's both a cultural issue and also a monetary issue, right? There's the thing that you said that we have this thing of move fast and break things, which leads translates into moving fast and losing money. Yeah. But there's also the fact that many of these projects, they are bootstrapped. They are started by founders that don't actually have a massive VC behind them and they can't afford security talent. Even if they wanted to, it's just not within their budget, right? Yeah, and that's and, where I feel like we have to drive down the price of well-known bugs, right? And we have to move similarly towards processes that are sort of like, hey, these are the table stakes. The table stakes are that you are building your smart contracts in a secure way. And that if you're not starting there in the way that you're building your smart contracts, that you're not, you're not ready. <laughs> there definitely needs to be a little more of an emphasis on really identifying what the threats are to a particular protocol and having those in mind as people are building. And that's, that's a, that is definitely a cultural shift. It's, it's education, it's resources, it's, but there's a lot of that sort of stuff that if, I think if we as a community are pushing more and more for that, that even those, even those protocols that don't have a lot of money, that they can implement some of those things through their own rigor and discipline and 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 be able to feel like we need to we need to be at a place that if i would say if the only way for a protocol to be able to be secure is to spend a million dollars on audits in in their process like then we we definitely have more work to be done and it should it should be that we're most definitely there's always going to be players who are spending millions on audits and security because what they're doing is to take, it needs to be taken as seriously as a bank, but there's plenty of other smaller projects that should be able to achieve a level of security that's good, but through far more, far more accessible means. But a big part of that is actually the discipline is the, is actually secure by design as an approach, which means more mm -hmm. education and knowledge. It means more people who've been auditors involved as those co-founders of those projects, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, I think the approach to security a lot of time is that security is the least sexy thing on their mind, right? They're designing their thing, right. they're building it, they want to get to market, yeah. and they don't want to have to take longer to make sure it's safe because they are on the happy path. And for them, like, oh, this is good, right? Like, this is solid. I paid attention to it. Yeah. And it's not on the front of their, their mind. They're not thinking it's an attractive way to spend their time. And if somehow we can cause a shifting mindset and make the founders take pride in their security, like many of them do, and they get to showcase the things that they've done. I think a good example would be Sablier, 
which has done talks about their security and that leads to not only more attention from from other protocols, but also more respect and driving more users through a protocol. So maybe incentivizing that culture shift could be a way that founders just are more aware and more willing to implement security from the ground up and spend a little more time on that because they know they're going to get that extra respect and the extra attention from the industry in general. Yeah. And I think, I think that education of the end user is also a piece of that, right? So the average user, when it comes to like, there were just a lot of things in the early internet that it was like, oh, don't click on a link. Don't like all these like basic kind of simple things. Like don't trust the site that does this. Don't make sure that if you see, if you see an insecure site that you're very aware of what you're doing on it. And there's some, some basic sort of individual hygiene that I think will help shift the market too. And, and, and some of that comes in like a lot of those things in the web came in implementations in browsers where they started informing users about risks. And so I think a big thing that we will see is we'll see wallets that will do a better job of informing users of risks. So there are wallets that do a better job of informing users of risks. And there are tools that do a better job of informing users of risks and projects that do. And so I think moving things in that direction to where it's like, well, if you if you can't demonstrate that you have crossed this this point and this point and this point, then you're gonna get a yellow warning. <laughs> you're gonna get a red warning on on your site for for your your application, your contracts. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of work that we have to do to get there, but I don't think we're that far off, honestly. And I think that it will be really valuable for the industry, for users, when we are able to do a better job of providing that information to them. The other thing that I think is the case is that security researchers are focused on security research and they're focusing, they're focusing largely on impressing security people. And I think we need more people that are helping to translate the impact of security and what, like where good, good investment of security, like where that value provides a business or an organization or community from a very like down to earth. Here's the, here's the reason why. And it's not just like, well, if you don't do this, you're going to get hacked. Cause it's not that it's not that cut and dry. And it also, you can do those things and still get hacked. And the fact is like it, there, there's a lot of layers to it, as you said, in creating a complete comprehensive approach to, to security. And so I think doing a better job of educating users, but also of educating like the business people who are making the decisions when it comes to how a protocol is going to decide whether to ship when something isn't quite ready from a secure perspective or who are going to decide that they're going to spend more money on marketing instead of security in the early going of a project because they see that as essential to their viability and saying like, okay, well, you know, we're going to need to raise the bar on that and we're going to need to figure out how we're going to either be more efficient or spend money differently because if we can't meet this bar, then users are not going to trust us and it won't matter how good our marketing is. And so I think that the, the overall, all those pieces coming together is what's going to, it's, what's going to get us over the, 
I would say when I said we're at like a two or a three, I think that if we've got to the point, if we get to the point where we are seeing that feedback loop of users making decisions about what projects they trust based on what their interface is informing them about. And I think, and we're incorporating that knowledge and Intel as a factor into processes and into the way that projects are allocating their resources and all the rest, like we start to very quickly get across like a five. So I, I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit for us as an ecosystem to get there. And that once you've crossed a five, you definitely, now you've got a, now you've got some momentum moving in the right direction. Right. So it's definitely a long ways to get to a 10. And I would say even like in other industries, I was talking to somebody who, you know, they, they do a lot of work with FinTech who are, they've, they're not even, not even dealing with new technologies. Like they're dealing with things that are very old and are well known how to secure them. There's not brand new ODAs popping up. You've got just super well-known systems and just how insecure so many of those are. So it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not that everybody else is doing this extremely well. It's that we have to, in, in, for this industry, we have to do it better than everybody else. It's the, the, the stakes are higher. That's it. So. Yeah. I think there's a incredibly important point. And could you dive in a little bit more on the topic that you touched on, the layers that security researchers should be more attuned to instead of just saying you should get an audit or you're going to get had. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how they could consult different parts of an organization and how that should be implemented in a more practical level? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that there's one of the classic elements of traditional security auditing is building threat models. And I think threat models have a lot of value for also helping businesses to understand what the risks are and why it's worth making additional investment from a security perspective. And so if you're unfamiliar with threat models, I would go check out pasta is probably the one that I would recommend as the most appropriate for it's P A S T A just spelled just like pasta, <laughs> but it's an acronym. And it's really a method for essentially just imagine a mind map where at the top of the mind map is whatever the ultimate goal that you're trying, the, the attacker is trying to achieve. And then you are essentially branching out from there of like all the different ways that someone might achieve that. And so when you start, when you start doing that and you're able to be able to identify like ways that you can insert circuit breakers to say like, okay, well, if, if this thing happened, right. So I think having, th having threat model, like, so I want to go back to the education piece. So involving business people and involving the entire organization in understanding their security model, I think is an essential part of, of security. So when I mentioned evil packet, when he joined code arena on staff, one of the first things that, that he did, I really enjoyed was basically he shared a presentation with, with everyone in, in the organization on a staff level about the role that everyone plays in securing the platform that everybody is, everybody is part of that. And that's not just in the sense of like, Hey, Hey, stupid, don't click on links, right? Like, Hey, don't do this dumb thing, you idiot. Right. Like that's kind of how a lot of security, like policy sort of comes across. It's basically like, you're an idiot. Don't be an idiot. 
you're the problem. Please don't do this. But the way that he brought it in, which I absolutely love, is he basically was like, you know what? Every single vulnerability that exists, like there are people who are going to see it and people who are not going to see it. And, and there are threats that some people will see and some people won't see. It. And he gave an example of like, if every single person in the organization was to imagine going and buying an iPhone on from somebody on the internet, right? If they basically were like, I'm going to buy this through Craigslist or whatever, right? Like, what are the things that you would be concerned about? And the thing that you immediately see as very simple is like, well, based on the size of the person, right? And their physical presence and maybe men being more comfortable just like going into this scenario or than women or, or smaller, smaller people feeling less comfortable. You immediately have this angle of like safety, right? Like personal safety. And you have, but you also have like people who have had the experience of like being scammed, right? And so they're thinking the thing that they're worried about is like getting scammed. They're not worried about like, they're worried, is it like a real iPhone? Does it work? Like what are the, so when you're going through and thinking about the risks in this scenario, everyone is going to see risks differently. And some people are going to introduce completely new risks that you haven't thought about, right? So like, for example, someone could be version of this is like, well, someone could have something that they've, they've specifically targeted you for this. And they're trying to get some piece of Intel from inside your, inside your network or whatever, right? Like there's totally wild, like things that, I mean, if you're, if you're a high, high value target, like it's entirely possible that there's some pretty elaborate things. People are doing a lot of, a lot of elaborate things. Um, and so being able to think that way is, I think in order to do that, that requires the organization thinking that way. It's not just the developers because everybody is going to have their own blind spots. And that is, I think probably one of the biggest things that Code Arena really brings in is how often it is that people who, because of the fact that they just think differently, that they're able to do some things that other people aren't, who might be like, quote unquote, like experts in comparison, right? I just love Chris Apostolov. There's like the, someone was like, oh man, the feeling of like showing up and competing and thinking that you did really well. And then finding out that you got beat by 16 year old and Chris Apostolov is like, well, that's because other auditors didn't have gummy bears. And the reality is like a 16 year old is just going to, they're just going to think differently. They're going to think differently than me as somebody super old and somebody like Sorry Not Sorry, who's been a ship captain, right? Like he's got a totally different worldview when it comes to looking at smart contracts. He's like, he's coming at it in a way that doesn't have default assumptions about how to read, how to read code because he's coming at this completely fresh or OX52 who uh, also was not a developer prior to starting auditing. And so I think actually acknowledging the value that everybody can contribute inside of an organization from a security perspective is like a fundamental piece. And then bringing them into an understanding of the role that they can play and that, that their role actually matters. And that the decision that say a CEO or a lead committee or something in a protocol might make as a decision that even if they don't understand smart contract security at all, that decisions that they make could be the most decisive ones that get made as far as what their security is, that because they've decided to spend the time and get educated themselves, right? And these are all conversations that anybody can have, that anybody that has, I mean, I am like 
completely inept as an auditor. I can write code really badly. I've been doing it for a super long time. I, I am not an auditor, but I understand how I understand the human side of, of security and I understand a whole lot of the risks and a whole lot of the different pieces of it just because I've been around it. And I have value that I can contribute because of that. And I think that a lot of times people in niche expertise come from a perspective of because they're so focused on trying to impress other auditors that they really only think that it's impressing other auditors that matters. And in fact, translating that knowledge to someone from a business perspective, maybe the most impactful thing you do rather than even finding the high, the, this kind of rare esoteric and unique, interesting, high severity finding, like that might've been super hard to find anyway by some attacker. But in fact, if, if you could provide the education as to why someone might choose not to use centralized approach with their protocol and, and the risk of like, Hey, you, if somebody on this group gets compromised, the whole thing can be totally screwed over. Just simply providing that knowledge might even be, even though that's like basic entry level security knowledge for a security auditor and isn't going to impress anybody, that could be the most valuable thing that a protocol, most, someone impressing them on that and making the point and helping them to understand that might be the most valuable thing that a protocol needed in order to be secure. So it's really that thinking that I think that shift is, is, is the impact that auditors can have. Yeah, that's a very good point to make. And that brings me to a question that do you think that ranking by money earned is the best way to increase someone's uh, reputation rather than increasing their reputation based on the quality or impact of their work instead, rather than just the uniqueness of their bugs? Is there something that you plan on taking in consideration? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So there's a, one of the things that we have discussion around is the fact that you sort of have this spectrum of participation that image that like kind of sits on this, you can imagine a spectrum between like hunters and gatherers. And then you have another like vertical, you sort of have this two by two grid and the vertical is sort of like competitors and contributors. And you have people who basically are in sort of the hunters and competitors angle who are those are really like bounty hunters, right? Those are people who are like, they're trying to find the solo high. They're trying to find the thing that is going to pay the most, the best. And they're probably focused mostly on rarity and uniqueness and creativity and all the rest. And it requires a certain level of expertise of doing that. But at the other end of the spectrum is definitely the, the gatherer, right? So the competitor who's a gatherer, we have people, there's some people that I saw, I don't know, like five or so months ago that were talking about a different way that they were tracking their own success on Code Arena, which was essentially of the bugs that were identified, how many did they find? And just, just comparing their ratio within that and saying like, Hey, of the, of the five high severity findings, I found three of them of the four mediums. I found four of them. And so I feel really good about my result on this. And that is an angle of like, you have that sort of, they're on the competitor angle. Like they're trying, they're, they're all in, right? Like a competitor angle is like, they're trying to, they're really, truly trying to win or contribute as much value as they possibly can. And I think that there is more that we can do to validate. The interesting thing is that I think that the, a traditional security firm in general is more on the, is more on the gatherer side. And part of that is like the, the, incentives, right? You talk about the human side of it. 
So one of the things that's the case in, I talk about the fact that that security is just this deeply emotional thing and that most of the things that drive it are fear and shame. And if you are, if you are a firm, the thing that you most want to avoid, or you are an independent auditor, the thing you most want to avoid is actually missing something that you, that, that was easy, obvious, that if you applied just a little bit of review that you would have caught, right? You aren't embarrassed by somebody who is going to spend two weeks theorizing an attack that is extremely complex. You're just like, I only had so much time and I was trying to catch as much stuff as I could. And I was trying to be as thorough as I could. It's unrealistic for me to imagine that I should have caught that, right? Like, so people don't take that on, but there is a piece of like, boy, the fear would be, and so you sort of have on this end, you sort of have the fear of like, well, I don't want to miss anything that's straightforward. That's classic thing that I should have known or that is on my list of things that I'm going through. And, and then I think that you have sort of on the, the hunter side, right? You sort of have the bounty hunter and they're focused on like the, the absolute payout of like whatever the best return for their, for their time is. And I think that Coterina kind of uniquely brings in people who are focused on both sides. The one thing that I think is the case that we could do a better job of is validating and identifying the people who are really competing on the um, gatherer side and trying to be as thorough as possible. Because I think those people actually contribute a significant amount of value. And I think that we could do a better job of bringing that into the overall. And we have had some discussions about how we could do that. So most definitely... To your question, yes, that's certainly something that that we see and have talked about. So the other, other piece is like kind of that the spectrum of like competitor versus contributor, and there are definitely people who very early on in Coderina, there are people who basically had almost no time to compete, but they would look at every single project and they would do so specifically because they had some they had some particular types of bugs that they knew really 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 well and they could identify them very very quickly, and so. If if a project had, for example, an Oracle, if you used an Oracle, then there were some people that would just go look for bugs related to Oracles because they knew those bugs really, really well. And so essentially like they were trying to, they were contributing, right? But they were on the competitive side of, or they were on the kind of the hunter side of, of competitor, right? They're trying to just focus on the things that they can contribute to, to, to it from their unique hunting sort of perspective. But then you've got people who are coming in who are really learners, right? And they're just trying to gather what whatever and however they can. And they're going to contribute, <clears throat> but their their contribution is really largely to themselves, right? Because what they're leveling up is they're leveling up their own knowledge and their ability. And it may be that, that they contribute because there's a mass of them that are contributing that, in fact, some of the things that they think might be commonplace happen to not be because they have a unique vantage point, right? So that even though they're, even though they may be over on the contributor side, their, their, their contribution might be just as valid or as important as as somebody who's on the uh, competitor side. And so I think we can do a a better job of acknowledging all those different quadrants and the ways that people are competing and the motivations behind them. And we've had a lot of discussions on that. And that's definitely something that I think is worth continuing to look at. So. What about bringing in the sponsors for some subjective metric on their favorite findings and taking that into monetary consideration? For example, 
there was this medium finding that was really meaningful for us for some reason, more meaningful than this other unique finding, even though only one person found it, or it might be a high unique finding that according to the current algorithm, it's a high, very high payout, but according to the sponsor and the value that they felt they received wasn't, wasn't that important for them. Absolutely. This is something that we've talked about. I think it's, it's one of those fields that there's a lot of dragons because you get to the point of potentially a sponsor feeling like it's their job to allocate the value across the algorithm. And the one thing that is, I think, interesting about the algorithm is that the algorithm is unemotional and doesn't care. And that that's a good thing in terms of the sense of fairness of the, because sometimes just like, well, you got, you got lucky because, but you didn't know that when you submitted the bug, it's not like you knew, or you were like, I'm going to get this thing. It's just, that's how the algorithm panned out. And so people's motivation going into it was to do as good of a job as they could. And the algorithm is going to result however, however it results. I do think that there is, there is a piece that, you know, of that sort of what I would consider to be the, the sort of value spectrum that could be incorporated, but I also based on past conversations, it seems to be a pretty risky one. And so something that we would do really, really, really carefully and probably experimentally before we did much with it. And there's a lot of other things that we're trying to, trying to solve. So probably not something we do anytime soon, but it's definitely something that I think has merit. I, I don't disagree with the perspective that you're describing. And it's something that I have felt a lot of times, but it is funny because I think a lot of times if, if people knew the exact result of what the thing was going to be, they would have behaved differently, but that is exactly the way the mechanism works, right? Like you don't know most of the time that people end up with massive awards. They had no clue that that was going to happen. They just were doing the best that they could. And it just were like, Oh my gosh, I did not, I did not. This is not the bug that I thought was going to pay me out $50,000. Like this is not something that I thought was going to be worth a ton. It's so I think to that end, it's, it's the algorithm working out in the whole, maybe not in the individual case, but like in terms of what the result was for the customer. So the customers maybe go going like, I, this is, I wouldn't have paid $50,000 for this bug. And I wouldn't have only paid like 10 cents for this bug because these ones that were all 10 cents, like that was actually a really important bug, but it was still easy for everybody to find. Right. So the marginal value isn't greater and the algorithm I have argued with the algorithm for most of its existence emotionally. And I've come to terms that as a person, I respect the algorithm and I am like, we, I get along with it. It's, it's, it's a unique, it, it brings its own unique energy, but it's, it, it has given us a lot of things. It's given us all a lot of things. Right. And on, on some levels, I think trying to trying to mess with it too much introduces things that we never would have foreseen. So we're pretty cautious about that. Well, if I can just throw my hat in the ring a little bit, maybe a way that could be entertained to implement something like this would it be to ask the, the protocol for their point of view and then maybe the judge 
if he agrees with their point of view, he might act on that or he might not. I think that still respects the algorithm to the majority of its extent, but it gives the opportunity for there to be an extra layer of reflection and rearrangement of compensation based on the actual perceived value of what was given by the auditor. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that's the case also there is that the sponsor may not be sufficiently expert in order to provide that input. Right. So I do think that there are some sponsors who absolutely like whatever their input would be, would be useful. And the thing that I mostly worry about in opening that is just what really what, what expectations get set for the degree to which, because most definitely we've had sponsors in the past that wanted to just like decide themselves how the funds got allocated and in, and that's a, it gets to be a really slippery, slippery slope on that front. So I, I think that there is, I think, yeah, a hundred percent, like there is something in there that could be done, but it is something that we, we would do really cautiously. Yeah, I think the the decision should never rely on the sponsor itself. I think the, the final decision should always be by the judge in that scenario. And the sponsor would just have an opportunity to to say how they feel. Yeah. And if the judge agrees with it, then the auditor gets rewarded by providing better perceived value. Yeah, I mean, I could totally see it. And do you think that the same model would work for traditional web two security services. The, the fact is that like, I think that there's a couple of, so the model itself would work, I believe for web two. However, one of the things that is really powerful about how code arena has arrived at the place that it has is that we have bootstrapped a massive amount of knowledge and this feedback loop of individuals. And we've gathered a lot of individuals who've then become this, this stream of, of folks who continue to level up the security of the protocols, the ecosystem, the, the auditor base as a whole individual audit firms who then hire these folks protocols who consult with these folks or who add them as team members or folks who go on to be developers of various protocols who have experienced auditors, right? That entire aspect is super unique. I think to this environment because of like the time and place that Coderina emerged, emerged in. And I, I don't know, like, I, I think that if you had, if you had the ability to gather people who were sufficiently motivated from a web two perspective, then I think, yeah, it could totally work. And I think it could work really well. But the other thing that you would have to have match with that is sufficient funding, right? Of most audits that happen on the web two side are not priced the way that web three audits are. I mean, our audit firm, if we, if we could book for 10 K a week per auditor, we were beyond thrilled. I mean, that was like pretty much our, our goal. Occasionally we got a little better than that, but for the most part, that's, that's where we're aiming at. And that's, I mean that today that'd still be a pretty decent rate, but, but I think in terms of what most people are spending, and that was, a, I mean, that was an outstanding 
outstanding team of pen testers who were super veteran and really had had demonstrated their their talent against some really really top protocols and so they're not protocols but projects and not projects but businesses i guess <laughs> like anyway I'm lost here so yeah i mean i think the you look at what people pay for bug bounties in web 2 and it's embarrassingly bad i mean it's like really embarrassing how low those bounties are but a flip side of that is actually I think it's an indication of how like the, mat the maturity of the space, right? Like, and also the risk, like what the risk level is. It's just so much bigger in, in our ecosystem. So I think the model would work. I think there's a lot of other like question marks around it. However, I do believe that one thing that we absolutely should be doing more of is we should be auditing more Web2 aspects of Web3 projects within Code Arena. That's definitely something that we really should be adding to our overall surface area. It's an indication to me also of the immaturity of the space that most audits are really focused just on smart contracts, when in fact, there's definitely a lot of attack surface area. That, you know, Certainly, a smart contract vulnerability is going to be the most catastrophic, but there are definitely vulnerabilities that do occur in front end, particularly from a malicious standpoint that, that have caused some pretty significant acts. So let's. Yeah. I think more firms and auditors in general should try and develop the skill set to cover the whole, the whole pipeline of security, including the front end and the smart contract backend, even though the front end might not have such risks, it's still part of the security pipeline. So I think as the industry evolves, those two are going to be more and more merged together. And in my opinion, I think the bug bounties are just going to keep increasing and increasing because if you compare the TVL of Define General to regular tech companies, it's minuscule at the moment. And I think as more serious players come into the blockchain and regulations become more and more let's say setting stone, the amount of money is going to increase and so is the the risks or the compensation for bug bounties. Speaking of the regulatory landscape, did you feel any effect from, from the regulatory uh, shifts and tribulations affecting C4? Well, I mean, I think absolutely that as far as the overall market is concerned, that has, that has an impact, but it's sort of, a it's sort of a one that is hard to interpret because i think that we were on a particular trajectory growth wise during the bull market and that the the impact of the entire market drawdown was not felt immediately but then was sort of out of a lagging effect but we've then continued to grow from there so it's i think that particularly the just the overall state of the, the market has a bit of an impact for sure. And I think that we would have been absolutely barreling towards that sort of 20 audits a week number, you know, if, you know, if the bull market had stayed, stayed running in terms of regulation, the main thing is it's just a giant pain in the ass from the perspective of like a Dow and all of that stuff to be in the United States. And that's definitely something that's been frustrating and something that's taken like 
an enormous amount more time than anything even close has been worth on that side. So I'm not sure which of those two were sort of where the, the question was going because it just sort of touches on both, but, but it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely annoying as far as what the, the regulatory state is. And, and then on, as far as the overall market, I think it has some effect, but probably the biggest effect for us is that there are, there, there was a point when we had more projects and less wardens. And we were really cautious about how many audits we were running simultaneous. And then, and then it, it was like it flipped in, in reverse and the growth of wardens just kind of took off from an exponential pr perspective, which I think makes sense in the market state, right? People looking for new opportunities. So I would say that's probably the biggest area. Yeah, that makes sense. And outside C4 and the security space, is there anything about crypto or DeFi that is generally exciting for you at the moment? Well, I mean, I definitely think that when it comes to, I, I really believe in the, the value of the commons and things that people are building together in open source space and in the potential for what is possible when people are openly collaborating. And so that is, that is principally the thing that I absolutely love about space is that we are really all building kind of a new economy together and we're doing it in a way that is, is open and provides a lot of opportunities for people across the whole world that, that are, you know, very needed in, in a lot of ways. And so that's the stuff that gets me excited is what the impact for the everyday person who, whether that's opportunities to access parts of the economy where they can use their skills in a way that gives them access to jobs and opportunities that pay them so well that they can be a massive impact for their family and for their communities and for other people that they're trying to take care of wherever, wherever they're at around the world and can, and can help other people then open themselves up to those same opportunities. I, and then I would say, um, that's, that's a big, big factor. And then of course the value that a decentralized financial system has for people around the world who are otherwise unable to participate in stable financial systems, I think is it's incredibly valuable. And then just the, the openness of it and the level of ability for people to collaborate and build things in, in a way that's completely new is exciting. I think DAOs, for example, are really, really cool in, in a lot of ways. And I think there's still just plenty of room to explore in that direction. I think there's so many different types of ways to do decentralized organizations and to build, you know, many economic worlds and models that are super exciting that the smart contracts enable. So there's a lot of stuff that I think is cool and it's usually about the human side of the impact. Yeah. Yeah. I think DAOs are definitely one of the best ways to test different types of governance, micro scale that can be used for something on a bigger national level later sometime. Maybe you obviously have a very hectic schedule traveling to conferences and all the busy work that Code Arena requires, how do you manage to get some quality family time 
with the crazy work schedule? Well, I mean, I am for, I'd say most of my career as an entrepreneur, I, I have really been sure to work in a way that was honoring the energy that I had and the, like where my head and my focus were at and and then to take, you know, take time away from that in, in a completely random way. Right. So I don't actually have like a regular schedule in any way. I work super weird hours, which is why people in Coterina will see me at all, like literally all times of the day. Like, it's just weird that people have no idea what, like what time is already he's in. Yeah. And it's because of the fact that I, having worked part of remote teams for a really long time, I started to probably about 12 years ago, I started to have a bit of insomnia where I would just wake up in the middle of the night and be awake for a few hours. And I, around that same time, I was, I was running a business that had a team that had a number of employees who were outside of the U S were Europe and Australia. And, and so in doing that, I kind of got into the habit of waking up and checking in on folks, right? So I'm just, you know, running a business and, you know, they, they have various needs or things or questions or things that I can help with. And so I just got in the habit of doing that. And so I've kind of worked more in a way where, I mean, so right before this podcast, like I took, I took a nap. I, that's just, I will sleep or I'll go do whatever I need to with family, whatever, whenever I feel like I need to do it. And I know that like, I'm the nice thing about this field and this work and the fact that I'm working with a team that is international and in a community that's international there, it's not like there's a time of the day that I need to be somewhere. So if that means that I'm going to, I mean, I went on a, I went on a camping trip with my kids last week or two ago and was, I, I left the camp early in the morning to go join a Twitter space to go tether from a ways and join a Twitter space. And then, then I went back to the camp and spent the rest of the weekend with them. And there's like, I had to go, I had to go somewhere their cell service. I had to drive away ways a bit, but it was early morning and nobody, nobody really missed me being, not being there when, when they were still getting up. But there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. That is just, I've figured out ways to fit in what I'm doing alongside everything else that I've got going on and it all just kind of flows together. So I'm, I think, incredibly lucky that I've learned to work in that way for a long time to where like, I just don't do the like, okay, now I'm in work mode and now I'm not in work mode. This sort of like things just kind of flow in and flow out and flow in and flow out. And I definitely, if there's, if I need to set work stuff aside, then I do it. But, but for the most part, like I'm, I'm just kind of in and out and it, it works. So <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's, I'm just a very flexible person. And so most definitely like my kids need something like uh, they're going to get my full attention. So, yeah, I think I work a little bit like this as well, kind of like always on, but never on at the same time. And one last question, if you found a genie that could answer any of your questions, or you can only ask one question. What question would you ask him? Let's see. I would probably ask, I would probably ask, I'd probably ask a question about AI. 
Um, you know, honestly, I mean, <laughs> I'd ask a question about the, hmm, I would ask, the problem is I think I would probably want to ask several questions about AI if I could ask a question, right? I would want to ask, is AI going to destroy the world? I don't actually think that AI is going to destroy the world personally. Uh, I think it definitely poses a lot of real risks and a lot of insane chaos that we can't even imagine uh, is going to be part of our lives. <laughs> That's, that is something that I definitely think. And I think that people will die because of AI. There's no question in my mind that there will be, but people die because of humans and there may be lives that are saved because of AI. And so I don't know what the net overall net net is on that. The, but yeah, so I mean, this is very, now we're getting into very bleak question, I guess. And, and I would, uh, I would want to know, I would want to know if, if AI ends up creating something that, that brings, that brings humans into a place of, of, of really a better, of a better world, of a better way of being human. I think that it has the potential of doing that. And I think that there's also the potential that essentially we all just end up li living under the algorithm and that in the same way that like, I heard this analogy once that like in the, in, when it comes to like Uber and Instacart and everything else like that, it's like they're there are those that live above the, the algorithm and those who, those who live below the algorithm, right? There are people who are working at, and this is the case in like, there's some really interesting articles on Netflix and like when Netflix had, when Netflix was actually just like mailing DVDs, right? Like what did it look like for people to work in Netflix, right? On the two sides, right? There are people working in Netflix who were on the dev side and who they lived in absolute luxury, right? And they could take whatever they wanted in terms of vacation. And then there are people who are working in the warehouses, like shoving DVDs into slots and like trying to get these things out as fast as they could and as many as they could and it's a terrible working environment. And they sure couldn't take whatever unlimited vacation that they wanted, right? And so I've heard the analogy that like essentially you, the, the, future classes are basically those who are above the algorithm and those who are below the algorithm that essentially like, you know, anybody who's below the algorithm is working in order to support the needs of the, whatever the software product is. And that they're essentially put in a position where you know, they're, they're, they're asked to perform things that aren't, aren't necessarily in line with them, with what they need. And, and then there are people above the algorithm and that those that that entire dichotomy, right? I would want to, I, I'm curious from an AI, like when we look at AI, right? That, that sort of, that element exists all over the place, but it's not in to, it's not to the degree of the extreme potential that could exist with AI. And so I would want to know, but it also, we could get to the point where, where there is no such thing as below the algorithm. Like everybody's kind of above the algorithm. So that's probably my biggest question if I was going to go ask a genie anything. It's something I think about a lot of like, how do we get to a point of, of a, a world with technology that is continues to respect and value individual people for the unique, the, the unique and awesome things that individual people are. So, so it was a pleasure having you here. I oh, think man, it was, was a great, very interesting discussion that many people are going to enjoy. And I'm interested to see how Quadrin evolves as the market changes. Well, it's super great talking to you. It's uh, wonderful to get to see you face to face and we've known each other and have, I guess, sort of worked, worked alongside each other for a while. So it's good to, good to get to see you. So absolute pleasure.